The following audio is from Redeemer Anglican Church in Richmond, Virginia. More information about Redeemer is available online at RedeemerRVA.org. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints by his cunning He shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. The word of the Lord. Friends, please stand for the reading of the gospel. Gospel reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 24, verses 3 to 13. That's on page 829 of your pew Bibles. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us. When will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. 
Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Amen. Let's be seated. Once more, good morning, church. Hey, good morning to you all. For those of you who are new, welcome to Redeemer. It's good to see you. If we haven't met yet, my name is Dan. I'm very grateful to serve here as a pastor. Now, we are in the season of the church calendar that we call Ordinary Time. And I know that's familiar to some of you and probably new and strange to others of you. That's all right. Here's what you need to understand, is that the church celebrates, or rather anticipates the coming of Jesus at Advent, and then celebrates the incarnation of Jesus at Christmas. We behold the wonder of Jesus' ministry in Epiphany. We journey with Jesus through the barrenness of the season of Lent. We rejoice in the resurrection of Jesus at Easter. We welcome the indwelling of the Spirit of Jesus at Pentecost. And the rest of the year, roughly half of the year, we walk through a very simple time called ordinary time where we ask ourselves a very basic and rather ordinary question, which is in light of all that Christ has done, how will you and I live faithfully here in our place and in our time? And we take that question and we don't first take that question to the mirror to look at ourselves and wonder if we can identify faithfulness in our own image, nor do we take the question to each other to hear each other's opinions on what that faithfulness might look like. And we don't take the question to our innermost thoughts and desires to see if the answers to faithfulness are found inside of us, nor do we even take the question first to God in prayer, strange as that might sound, because we recognize that we often confuse the voice of God with our own inner monologue, right? Rather, what do we do? We take the question to God's word, to scripture, what the Christians call the Holy Bible, and then we do so trusting that what we find there will not only be true in a general kind of sense, but also transformative in a personal sense, that our inner and outer lives may in fact be changed by what we find in God's word. And this fall, we are taking this question of ordinary faithfulness to the Old Testament book of Daniel in a series that we're calling Faithful Presence in the City. And today we're going to read and contemplate chapter eight, which is, heads up, a very strange chapter. Okay, but it's going to be good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray right now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart and all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. Uh, All families have stories that get told and retold over the years. Here is a Murata family story that gets retold. Many years ago, uh, back when me and all my siblings were teenagers and still living at home, our family went for a hike in West Virginia. And it was a long hike, and it was promised to be absolutely beautiful. Uh, In fact, the description we read in like the little pamphlet that we received at the gates of the National Park described this hike as having one of the most stunning and majestic waterfalls on the East Coast. So we're all really excited. So we hike, and we go for hours and hours and hours down the trail. We're feeling a little tired. The younger kids in the family are getting a little worn out. There are requests for piggyback rides. You know, we're we're barely making it. And we think we're getting close. And we think, uh, initially, we think we're getting close because we can hear 
the sound of the waterfall. There's this like dull roar coming from this like place down the trail. And so we hike a little further, another half mile or so. And then we're starting to kind of go uphill. And we realize that as we start to crest the surface of the hill, you can see like the white frothing foam of the waterfall off in the distance. And at this point, I'm thinking, this thing is enormous. This is like bigger than Niagara Falls. I didn't know there were waterfalls this big in West Virginia. And we come up over the hill and the trees part and the, and the panorama kind of opens up in front of us. And that roar that we heard half a mile down the trail was the roar of the interstate. <laughs> and the frothing white foam is a row of white trailers. We were beholding a trailer park on the edge of the interstate. And it was ugly. <laughs> And so, you know, you have this experience where you're walking down the trail and you're thinking, we're going to come up on something majestic and beautiful. Good things are in store right around the corner. And then you crest the hill and you realize actually profound ugliness in store. The worst part of the whole trail was right there in front of us. Um, And in fact, at this point, we were so tired, we actually never made it to the waterfall. We just turned around and went back home. And now we tell the story all the time. And every time we go hiking, we have to tell the story of the trailer park waterfall. So... The reality is, though, all of us reach these places in our lives where we think things are about to get good, where you're kind of coming up on that trail, metaphorically, so to speak, in your life, and you're cresting the ridge, and you're thinking, okay, in the next season of life, things are going to be great. And I can't count how many times I have heard you all say some version of, when things slow down, then, y'all, let's just do away with that right now. One, things are never going to slow down. And even if they did, I'm not even sure that would make everything great. But you have this sense that good stuff is right around the corner. That is the sense that the prophet Daniel has in the beginning of chapter 8. The prophet Daniel is one of the exiles from Judah. He's been taken away from his hometown of Jerusalem. He's brought into exile in the nation of Babylon. It's this great pagan empire. He served out at this point most of his life in Babylonian exile. And he anticipates that he's getting to the end of this experience. Like at any, any minute now, God is going to bring his people back out of Babylon, restore Jerusalem, restore the temple that was destroyed there. And, and the great nation of Israel will kind of be reinstated. Every like good stuff is right around the corner. And then he gets this vision in Daniel chapter eight, and it is not good. And what he is getting is a peak over the hill. He's getting to look out into the future and rather than seeing everything starting to get good, he's realizing, oh, this is actually quite ugly. Oh, things are going to be really bad. Actually, the future of God's people is one of suffering. That's the vision of Daniel chapter 8. Now, let me say just a few more things about this. Uh, here's what Daniel sees. We didn't read the first part of Daniel 8, um, but we read the second half where we get the interpretation. Daniel sees this vision of a ram and a goat battling each other. Very strange. And there's some metaphorical imagery and symbolism happening where um, the ram has two horns, one higher than the other. Uh, The goat has this conspicuous horn between its eyes, which to me sounds like a unicorn. That's a little weird. Um, And then the horn on the goat is displaced and four more horns grow up. And then there's like this little uh, horn that evidently throws stars out of the sky. And then and according to the text, tramples truth to the ground, destroys the sanctuary in the temple of Jerusalem. And all of this horror and carnage and wreckage and violence lasts, according to the text, 2,300 evenings and mornings. And then there's the 
kind of end of the vision is that the sanctuary is restored after that. And Daniel witnesses all of this stuff. And he, I mean, there's some comfort here, just like you and I, goes, I don't understand. What is this, right? There's some comfort that if Daniel doesn't understand the Bible, you and I might struggle to understand it as well, right? So the angel Gabriel appears, messenger sent by God to give the interpretation. So the two ram's horns are evidently these kings of Media and Persia, um, and they're different sizes to represent the different strengths or different powers of these two different empires. The goat is the empire of Greece that is going to rise up after Media and Persia. The horns on the head of the goat represent these kings, and this little horn, the last one, is this king of horrific violence and evil who is going to wage war against the saints, against the people of God, and bring with him tremendous suffering for God's people. This is the vision of the future that Daniel gets. And so he's given this vision of a future of God's people that is one of suffering and pain and failure and weakness. He's come up over the crest of the hill. He's looking out over the panorama of the future and there's no good news in sight. And this is the great theme and challenge of this chapter of the book of Daniel. And the question we would all naturally ask ourselves after reading this would be something along the lines of, if you were given a glimpse of your own future, and all you saw was suffering, how would you face tomorrow? Like, how would you get out of bed the next day and keep going? If you knew that the rest of your life was just gonna be things going from bad to worse, and there actually wasn't a really fun season just around the corner, how would you keep going? And actually, the answer to that question lies in the final verse of the book or of the chapter, rather, chapter 8, verse 27, which reads, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. And if you're thinking right now, I don't think that answers the question, Dan. <laughs> Let's get into it a little bit. There's a mystery here to be uncovered. So the question is, how do you persevere to the end through suffering? And we're going to talk about certainty and uncertainty because that's what we see at play here, this dynamic between certainty and uncertainty in the life of a God follower. Let's begin with the certainty part. Um, The invitation, or at least the first invitation on hand in this chapter, is the invitation to grasp and to cling onto what certainty there is to be had. And that certainty is actually found in this one little verse in the chapter where the number of days of suffering is given. 2,300, 2,300 evenings and mornings. And then, according to the vision, the sanctuary gets restored. In other words, things get put right again. And the point of that, the main idea there is, listen, there is a certain and definite end to suffering, that all history is moving towards a single point on the horizon where suffering will end. And we actually have talked about this earlier in this series, just a couple weeks ago in Daniel chapter 6, the most famous chapter in all the book of Daniel, Daniel in the lion's den, the one that even most of our kids know. And we talked about how one of the incredible beauties of that story is when the lions in the pit actually become tame and docile, how it points us forward towards the day promised in the book of Isaiah when the lion will lie down with the lamb and actually all of nature, all of the world, the created order becomes tame and docile and the whole world becomes a place of peace. This is the promise of the Christian faith and we get a glimpse of it in this very famous but misunderstood story of Daniel in the lion's den. And here we have a glimpse of the same thing, 
a glimpse of the end of suffering. And knowing that there is an end gives you the ability to hold out even when it's hard, right? It's like that moment in sports practice where your coach told you to get down and start doing push-ups, And everybody asked, how many, right? And a really cruel coach won't tell you, right? Just start doing them. But a coach, once you actually know how many you're supposed to do, you can keep going all the way till the end. Knowing the end point allows you to hold out. It's like when um, our family takes our annual uh, road trip to the Outer Banks every summer for like the big Murata family vacation. Always sometime right around Norfolk or Newport News, right as we're hitting tunnel traffic in the Hampton Roads area, our kids will inevitably ask the question, how long until we get there? Are we there yet? And um, our kids need to know in that moment, not necessarily exactly how many minutes, But the question under the question is, is this trip ever going to (laughs) end? And they need to know that it will, right? And we never tell them because we just want to, you know, make them suffer a little bit. But no, like we, they need to know that this this trip is going to end. How long? It's kind of like when you're running a marathon. And if you're at mile 18 or 19 or 20, that's like when your legs give out and you just feel like you want to quit. You need to know that a marathon is exactly 26.2 miles, not 26.3. You need to know when it's going to end. You need to know where that finish line is. And if you know where the finish line is, you can persevere. You can keep going. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 gives us this nice, tidy little summary of this aspect of the Christian faith, which is, faith is assurance of things hoped for and conviction of things unseen, or we might say certainty of things unseen. There is a kind of certainty that all Christians are able to have, which is the certainty that at some point in the future, suffering will end and the world will at last be restored and made new. Um, There's uh, another way to understand this, which is called, um, some of you might know this, it's called the Stockdale Paradox. Some of you, if you've read Jim Collins' book on kind of corporate leadership called Good to Great, he references the story. And it's the story of Admiral Jim Stockdale, who was a U.S. prisoner of war in Vietnam, who was tortured over 20 times during his eight-year imprisonment. And when asked what gave him the ability to endure and to persevere with hope through all of that torture and suffering, uh, without being kind of like emotionally broken by the whole experience, he answered in one sentence, I never lost faith in the end of the story. In other words, clinging to that kind of certainty that at some point this is going to end, that allowed him to persevere. And the same is true for a follower of Jesus. You can have faith in the end of the story. You are living in a book where you know the final chapter. And this kind of certainty accessed by faith allows you to persevere. Now, the problem with the Stockdale paradox is that there is a second half to it. And the second half was uncovered in an interview with Admiral Jim Stockdale, where the interviewer asked a follow-up question. After Jim Stockdale said, I never lost faith in the end of the story, um, the interviewer said, well, what about the other guys? Who didn't make it out? And Jim Stockdale said, oh, that's easy. The optimists. The optimists didn't make it out. They were the ones who said, we're going to get out by Christmas. And then Christmas would come and Christmas would go. And then they'd say, we're going to get out by Easter. And Easter would come and Easter would go. And then Thanksgiving. And then it would be Christmas again. And, and they died of a broken heart. They were always waiting for things to get good again. Right around, just around the next corner. When things slow down. Someday. And that is actually what destroyed them. 
That is what undermined their that that kind of optimism undermined their ability to persevere through suffering because they needed the timeline to be shorter. What Daniel is facing here is an indefinite timeline. And therefore, the great danger for him in beholding this image, this vision, is to give up and die of a broken heart. In verse 15, after he receives the vision, he says, quote, I sought to understand it. This is the not understanding the what. He's seen something he doesn't understand. And all of us know what it's like to be in that point in your life where you go, I don't understand what's happening to me, right? I don't, like, I don't get it. I don't understand the experience I'm having with my boss or with my spouse or with my kids or with my neighbors or in school. Like, there's something in my life and I just don't get it. I don't understand. That's that first kind of not understanding, of not knowing that the prophet Daniel experiences. But then he gets this interpretation from God via the angel Gabriel and it actually unpacks it. It gives him the what. This is what it means. And then he says a second time, I did not understand it. This is the why. I, st- I might understand the what. I, now I know what's happening in my life, but I still don't understand why this is happening in my life. Why do I have cancer? Why is, it, is marriage so hard? Why are, is raising children this sort of like exercise in futility and exhaustion sometimes? Why are things with my neighbors not working? Why is my body falling apart? Why is work just this, like, why do I feel like I'm a cog in a machine and that I, what I'm doing doesn't matter at all? Why am I trying to make an impact in my life, but I feel like I'm making no impact at all? Why? And is he given an answer? No. No answer to the second question. No answer to the second, I don't understand. And listen, this is actually not new to us, but we may be unfamiliar with this dynamic in the Christian faith. And I'll explain why in a minute. But first, let me just show you that this is actually a primary and even major theme in what it means to be a follower of Jesus and therefore a part of God's people. You think about Abraham responding to God's call, leaving the Ur of the Chaldeans, not knowing where he is going. You think about Israel wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. You think about Hannah in her years of barrenness, never being sure whether God will answer her prayer for a child. You think about Jeremiah in lamentation over the city of Jerusalem after it's destroyed, never being sure if God's city is going to be rebuilt. You think about Jonah in the depths of the sea, crying out for rescue, not being sure if God's going to hear him. You think about Jesus' disciples after Jesus is arrested and their like really epic three years of ministry comes to a halt. And you think about our text today, Daniel is in exile and he has this terrible vision of suffering. There's a lot of not knowing happening here. There's not only not knowing the what, there's certainly a not knowing the why. And this is why the story ends in verse 27 with him overcome, lying sick, feeling appalled. It's a pretty bleak end to the chapter. He's overcome. It's too much for him. He's maxed out. He can't handle it. Look, if the prophet Daniel can't handle stuff, there's no way you're going to handle stuff, okay? He's better than you. And if he can't handle it, neither can you, all right? He lay sick. He was physically exhausted. You know that there are times in your life where you experience such dismay emotionally and spiritually that it affects you bodily, physically, right? And then he's appalled. In other words, he's emotionally and spiritually maxed out. He's totally on empty and he's lying in bed for days. He's experiencing what mystic, Spanish mystic poet St. John of the Cross would later describe in the 16th century as the dark night of the soul. Some of you might be familiar with this, others of you might, might not be aware of this, but 
It's this incredible poem, and it begins in the original Spanish with these words, en una noche obscura, which we would say or translate to be on a dark night. And there is a reason why literature is replete with poems and short stories and novels that begin with phrases like, it was a dark and stormy night. This is the source text. It all started here. On a dark night, kindled in love with yearning, so happy chance I went forth without being observed, my house being now at rest. Now, we don't really talk that way. What he's poetically saying is, my home and the warmth of light and knowing and surety lie behind me, and I have left those, and I'm out in the darkness. It's a dark night of the soul. This is part of a larger tradition um, called mysticism in Uh, the Christian church as a part of our church history in which there is a real and sustained resistance to what I would call the idolatry of certainty or the idolatry of knowing. And so you have uh, monks and nuns in the church who write books with titles like The Cloud of Unknowing, which to me feels both interesting and disturbing. (laughs) And in it, you find sentences like these, God can be well loved, but he cannot be thought By love, God can be grasped and held, but by thought, neither grasped nor held. Knowledge tends to breed conceit, but love builds. Knowledge is full of labor, but love full of rest. Now, just a quick caveat. This is not anti-intellectualism. It's not anti-theology. But it is against, I think, a kind of like idolatry of certainty or idolatry of knowing that we, just by virtue of the fact that we are like people living in the United States of America in the 21st century in Western culture, I think just tacitly participate in whether we know it or not. I received a letter in the mail yesterday um, because I'm a pastor and I get like mailings from Christian publications. And it was, a, it was an advertisement for a certain Bible study curriculum. And on the front page of this thing, it said in giant, all caps, bold letters, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. And I thought, oh no, is that where we are? You can't love God unless you know him and understand him, which means you will never love God. This is the fundamental problem of American Christianity, that you cannot love until you understand and you cannot worship until you understand what is happening in your life. And every single one of us walked into this room this morning with places or maybe even whole sections, swaths of our lives that are a complete and utter mystery to us. We do not understand. We don't know what's going on. We don't know the what or the why. And if that is a pre, if understanding those things becomes a prerequisite for knowing God or for loving God and for worshiping God, then your spiritual life with God is gonna be real short. You're gonna rut up against what Pete Scazzaro calls in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, the wall. What he calls the wall and what the ancient mystics called the cloud of unknowing are the same thing. It means you hit this point in your life where maybe you've been a follower of Jesus or a Christian for a little while and initially it all kind of makes sense. You like read the Bible and you're like, oh my goodness, I can understand this. This is really great. It makes sense of my life in so many ways. And you're learning new things and you're studying theology and you're growing and you're learning and then stuff hits the fan in your life. 
and you go flipping through the pages of the Bible trying to figure out what does it mean? What does all of this pain and suffering and catastrophe in my life mean? What am I supposed to learn from it? And you start asking questions like, I broke my leg. What is God trying to teach me? Stop it. That whole frenetic exercise to understand all the ins and outs of what God is doing and what is happening in your life, it is not only unnecessary, it is a form of idolatry because it's a form of control. And actually, that's the primary way that Daniel chapter 8 has been mishandled through much of church history. Because instead of talking about the invitation to certainty in the end of the story, but uncertainty in the midst of the story, instead you get whole books written about how this date or this ram or this goat or that horn actually maps on to world geopolitical history. And that's how we know that Jesus is coming back in like 1984. It makes a wreck out of people's lives. And it completely undermines their ability to be faithfully present in their own time and in their own place. Faced with uncertainty, we try to get control. And attempts to interpret the dates are attempts at control. It's a way of saying, if I can just know, if I can just understand what is happening, well, then I'll feel oriented and I'll have, a, I'll have this sense that my life isn't this like raft just floating down a river completely out of control. And I don't even have a paddle which is what life feels like most of the time, at least for me. And so I ask you, where are you desperately seeking control through understanding? Is it in your suffering? Is there a place of pain in your life where you're thinking, if God just told me why this was happening, then I'd be okay? Is it maybe in, in romance, whether with a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a fiance or maybe with a spouse, where you're like, I have to understand what is happening in my relationship. I need to understand my spouse because only once I understand my spouse, then, then I can love them. And only if they understand me, then they can love me. And so you stay up late having these silly arguments where you're like trying to understand the misunderstanding on top of the misunderstanding, which is why you started fighting in the first place. You guys have no idea what I'm talking about, do you? Yes, you do. It is futility. You do not need to understand each other to love each other. Loving, love is not on the other side of knowing. Knowing's on the other side of love. Is it maybe with our children? We have to understand what is happening inside and outside in the lives of our kids, so that I can control the outcomes of my kids' lives. I desperately want my kids to grow up to be healthy and prosperous and you know, joyful and just, just five gold stars across the top. And in order to ensure that, I need to control. In order to control, I need to know. What about politics? I think this drives our insatiable appetite for news, especially political news. I must understand what is happening in our city and our state and our country and our world so that my life doesn't feel so out of control. And because we are unsure of the end that we seek, of the end, we end up seeking to control in the present. We end up flipping the certainty and the uncertainty that we're invited to in this text rather than embracing the certainty of knowing the end of the story, that one day all wrongs will be made right. Rather than embracing that certainty, we feel a little foggy on that. So instead we seek control in the present. I need certainty right now. I gotta lock this thing down. We're uncertain of our eternal hope, so we seek certainty for our lives in the present. And into that flipping, that backwards certain and uncertain dynamic that we all wrestle with comes the mystery of faith. And it is a mystery. You cannot wrap your mind around it, you cannot grasp it, and you certainly can't control it. And later in this service, you're gonna hear that mystery of faith 
as Danny Hyman stands at this table and says to you, the mystery of faith, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Y'all, you can't understand it and the disciples who lived with Jesus all through those moments didn't understand it either. Did they understand Jesus's ministry? Nope. Jesus would say something or teach something or do something and then later they would kind of pull him aside and go, okay, Jesus, nobody understands you. Can you please understand what on earth you just meant, (laughs) right? So throughout Jesus' life and ministry, it's a mystery. The disciples cannot understand what on earth is going on. And then Jesus is arrested and he's tortured and he's crucified and he dies upon a Roman cross. And that is a profound enigma to the disciples, which is why they all run away. I don't understand this. Therefore, I can't be part of it. I have no control over this. I'm out. And then Christ's resurrection, which is wonderfully and delightfully, mysteriously hysterical because the disciples didn't get that part either. And that's the good news. That even after the resurrection of Christ, the disciples still can't figure out what's going on. And they spend all the rest of their interactions with Jesus going, can you please just explain this once more to us? <laughs> and therefore, the mystery that the disciples and all the rest of us are invited to participate in is the mystery that one day Christ will return and suffering will end. And the kind of certainty that we can have about that future is based on the certainty we have in what has happened in the past that Christ has died and Christ has written. Of this, risen. Of this, we are certain. Therefore, we are certain about the third part of the mystery, that Christ will come again and suffering will cease. Now, what this allows us to do, and don't worry, we're almost done, is to do what Daniel does at the very end of chapter eight, which is he gets up and he goes back to work. And he goes back to work for King Belshazzar in Babylon. (laughs) And I don't know what kind of boss you have. I don't know what kind of professors you have at U of R or VCU. I don't know what kind of spouse you're married to or what kind of situation you're in with your parents or relatives or anybody. But no doubt, all of us have people over us in our lives or beside us in our lives or around us or nearby who are making life difficult, right? In fact, life can feel so exhausting and there can be so much pain and suffering and just discomfort that you feel like I can't get out of bed and keep doing this. And the reality is you absolutely can. You can get out of bed And you can keep doing this. You can keep putting one foot in front of the other. You can keep paddling. Even if your boss is an evil tyrant, I guarantee they are not worse than Belshazzar. Look, faithful presence here in the city of Richmond is what you and I practice between certainty and uncertainty. We hold these two things together and we live faithfully present in between. And we do this in our work, in our romance, in our family. We do it most especially in our suffering. You do not have to understand in order to be faithfully present. Um, I'm gonna end by drawing your attention to the cover art on the front of the liturgy that you received when you walked in. You've got a painting called uh, Weary, is it Weary Traveler? Weary Pilgrim. Weary Traveler by Emily Ford. What I really loved about this is that the uncertainty and certainty you actually see embodied even in who she is. On one hand, you have the uncertainty and the exhaustion of what it means to be a pilgrim or a sojourner or a weary traveler in this life. Her body is crooked, it's bent, it's curved over. She's leaning heavily on her staff. She's got a burden on her back. It seems like she can barely keep it on. It looks pretty heavy. And her her face is, is weathered and wrinkled and kind of browned by the sun. 
But then if you look closely, you can see in her face just this little hint of a smile. It's not a full-blown smile. There's no teeth showing. But there is, this face is the face of contentment. It's the face of peace. It's the face of certainty. That in the face of this woman, you know that at some point her journey is gonna be at an end. She won't always be carrying that burden. She won't always be stooped over. She won't always be leaning heavily on her staff. Y'all, this is you. You are suffering in some ways that we know and in some ways that nobody else in this room understands. And it can feel like you cannot keep putting one foot in front of the other, but you absolutely can because of the certainty of hope that you have in the resurrection of Jesus and in his promised return. Let's pray. Gracious Father, I pray that you would give us the endurance to persevere to the end, clinging with hope to your promise. Amen.